0: The Story of Psychology with your host, Professor Todd. Based on the work of Dr. C. George Boray. Part 3, The 1800s The Beginnings of Psychology Thus far, the research on the nervous system consisted largely of electrical stimulation of nerves. Muscles, dissected from the legs of a frog, would still move when the nerve attached to that muscle was stimulated with a thin electric probe. The next step was to determine what happened when the brain itself was stimulated in similar ways. What was already clear was that damage to the brain caused changes in behavior and body function. Animal research conducted by Franz von Leiden, Hans Pagenstecker, and Pierre Florenz demonstrated that chemicals injected into the brains of dogs caused profound loss of physical function. All of the animals showed derangement, stupor, and sometimes coma. The brain damage left the dogs unable to walk or bark. Knowing that certain parts of the brain were responsible for specific body functions, what remained was to study how the stimulation of those parts of the brain would affect the body. Researchers already knew that the brain would be important to understanding human psychology. Anatomist Gustav Fritsch, 1837 to 1927, and Edvard Hitzig, 1839 to 1907, employed a methodology called the Electrical Stimulation Method. The Electrical Stimulation Method was described as a technique for exploring the cerebral cortex with weak electric current to observe motor responses. They originally published their results on studies of localized electrical stimulation on the motor cortex of dogs. Gustav Fritsch used a thin probe to apply a weak electrical current to the exposed cerebral cortex of the dog. This research was done without anesthesia. Fritsch and Hitzig discovered that electrically stimulating specific areas of the dog's cerebrum caused involuntary muscular contractions in specific parts of the dog's body. Mapping the brain in this way, the pair identified what they labeled a motor strip, This is the part of the brain now called the motor cortex. It is a vertical strip of brain tissue on the cerebrum just back from the frontal lobe that controls movement in the body. The experimentation of Fritz and Hitzig was the first time that anyone had studied how specific regions of the brain responded to electric current. It was not, however, the first time that Edward Hitzig had experimented with the brain and electricity. Years earlier, in his career as a physician working with the Prussian army, Hitzig had applied electrical stimulation to the exposed motor cortex of wounded soldiers, as early as 1870. Using soldiers who had suffered head wounds in which their skulls were fractured by bullets, Hitzig noted that applying a small amount of electrical current to the brains of the soldiers caused involuntary muscular movement. Fritsch and Hitzig's later experimentation on dogs was an extension of this earlier, more random experimentation. By the way, let me mention that I do not condone this sort of research, nor do I take any joy in telling you about it. The history of the treatment of animals in the sciences is sometimes dark and sordid. Horrible things, sometimes torturous things, were done to animals in the name of science. And often, not very much good came of it. For instance, about all that was discovered in the research about injecting chemicals into the brains of dogs was that the left brain controls the right side of the body, and that damage to the right frontal lobe caused passivity, a finding that would later be employed in the technique called a frontal lobotomy. And the lobotomy would have its own untoward chapter in psychological science. In fact Fritsch and Hitzig performed their dog studies at Fritsch's home because the University of Berlin would never allow such experimentation to be conducted in their laboratories. Now I like to think that today we have evolved as human beings just a little bit since the early days of animal experimentation. Neo-Darwinian evolution has revealed that we human beings share genetic commonalities with every living thing. From this lizard, to this flea, to this sesame seed, we are all related on some genetic level. We share over 99% of our genome in common with monkeys, 92% with field mice, and 49% with bananas. So when we turn to the physical world to seek answers about how the world works, we should also have the humility to recognize our kinship with the creatures that we ask to teach us. They deserve to be treated fairly and justly by human beings, and not be harmed or tortured just because we happen to have evolved opposable thumbs and massive frontal lobes. Although animals are still used in research, the conditions in which they are kept have improved, and the things done to them are closely scrutinized. Concern for the care of animals used in research is now an important part of research ethics. The situation is still not ideal, but we are moving in the right direction. Now I have a friend who works in animal rescue, and she does not approve of any use of animals in psychological or other research. She tells the story of a beagle that was rescued from a university in Missouri's research laboratory. Whenever a human being would approach this little dog, she would extend her paw as if she wanted to shake hands. But this little beagle had not been trained to do tricks. The extension of her paw was a learned response because when she was in the research laboratory she was frequently approached by researchers who wanted to draw blood from her paw. She had learned to stick out her paw whenever a person reached for her. personally, I think that the use of animals in psychological research is justified in some circumstances, but we should always practice the highest degree of responsibility toward our animal subjects. If we are going to ask animals to make sacrifices in order to better the lives of human beings, then we owe it to them, and to ourselves, to be human beings worth sacrificing for. Hitzig and Fritsch's work opened the door to further localized testing of the brain by many other scientists, including the neurologist David Ferrier. David Ferrier, 1843 to 1928, was a pioneering Scottish neurologist and psychologist who extended the brain stimulation experimentation of Fritsch and Hitzig using monkey brains. Farrier started his experiments in 1873 at the West Riding Lunatic Asylum in Yorkshire, England. Trained under the influential free-thinking philosopher and founder of associative psychology, Alexander Bain, Farrier also worked in the laboratories of Hermann von Helmholtz and Wilhelm Wundt at the University of Heidelberg. The conditions under which Ferrier found himself were quite suitable for experimentation, including good facilities and an abundance of animals for experimentation, mostly rabbits, guinea pigs, and dogs. By the end of 1873, Ferrier reported his early results to local scientific meetings and in the hospital's own journal. The enormously influential West Riding Lunatic Asylum medical reports. Farrier later returned to London, where the Royal Society sponsored an extension of his stimulation experiments to macaque monkeys. Farrier was able to demonstrate that the stimulation of the cortex in animals could be used to map specific motor functions. He showed that increasing the intensity of the stimulation of the motor cortex caused erratic movements, such as that seen in epilepsy. In fact, Farrier mapped the monkey brain so accurately that he used his maps to locate a human brain tumor that was removed in the first such guided neurosurgery. These findings and their practical application to human betterment were used to defend and absolve Farrier from accusations of inhumane use of animals, brought against him by anti-vivisection societies and other scientists. Farrier was later one of the founding members of the National Society for the Employment of Epileptics, what is now the National Society for Epilepsy. <music> Robert Bartholow, 1831 to 1904, was an American physician from New Windsor, Maryland. Bartholow conducted the first systematic stimulation of the human brain in 1874. Bartholow was presented with a 30 year old patient named Mary Rafferty, who had a cancerous ulcer on her skull. Over time, this ulcer had so degraded the skull that two inches of her brain had been exposed. Inspired by the study of animal brains done by the neurologist David Ferrier, Bartholo applied a small electrical current to various sections of Miss Rafferty's exposed brain, and noticed that it caused movements in various parts of her body. The low electrical current did not seem to cause her any pain however when bartholo applied a larger amount of current mary rafferty became distressed she experienced convulsions and then went into a coma she revived 3 days later but the following day she had a major seizure and died now you might think that this clearly unethical research would spell the end of bartholo's career but you would be wrong Although he was criticized by the American Medical Association, this did not end his professional advancement. In 1893, he attained the title of Professor Emeritus at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. For better or worse, These experimentations on the brains of living subjects taught scientists and psychologists a great deal about the workings of the brain. However, it was not just research on living brains that revealed useful information. The post-mortem examination of the brain also unlocked some of the secrets held in this mysterious organ. Recall for a moment our earlier discussion of Franz Joseph Gall And phrenology. Gall's work originated in studies of the localization of function within the brain. Gall believed that specific areas of the brain control specific functions. Pierre Florens claimed to have disproved Gall's hypothesis with his ablation studies. However, debates about the localization of function hypothesis remained alive one of Franz Joseph Gall's former students offered a challenge to the medical professionals of his time to disprove the localization theory by finding a case of frontal lobe damage that was unaccompanied by a disorder of speech. In 1861, Paul Broca, 1824-1880, a French physician, anatomist, and anthropologist was presented with his first patient in the Basatra asylum, a man who had come to be called Tan, due to his inability to utter any word except Tan. This patient Tan, whose real name was Monsieur Lebon, lost his ability to speak 21 years earlier. Tan could still understand speech and otherwise had normal mental functioning, So when Tan died just a few days later, Paul Broca performed the autopsy. As predicted, the patient did, in fact, have an egg-sized lesion in the left frontal lobe, apparently caused by syphilis. Broca continued to study similar cases and eventually conducted 12 autopsies that all revealed similar damage to the left frontal lobe in cases of inability to speak. So consistent were his findings, that damage to this region and the accompanying loss of speech is now called Broca's aphasia. Broca's research led others to research a wide variety of other functions such as Karl Wernicke, 1848 to 1905. Shortly after Paul Broca published his findings on language deficits caused by damage to what is now referred to as Broca's area, Wernicke began pursuing his own research into the effects of brain disease on speech and language. Wernicke noticed that not all language deficits were the result of damage to Broca's area, Rather, he found that another area of the brain, in the superior portion of the left temporal lobe, resulted in deficits of language comprehension. Specifically, a patient with damage in this area could speak in nonsense words, but not form complete sentences. This region is now referred to as Wernicke's area. And the associated inability to understand speech or to produce meaningful speech is known as Wernicke's aphasia. Karl Wernicke died in Germany from injuries suffered following a bicycle accident. So please, as a bicyclist myself, look out for bicyclists and please share the road. The final figure whom I want to discuss in this podcast about postmortem studies of the brain is Santiago Ramón y Cajal, 1852 to 1934. Cajal was a Spanish pathologist, histologist, neuroscientist, and Nobel laureate, and considered by many to be the father of modern neuroscience. Among his contributions to neuroanatomy was his neuron theory. And this theory, about the neurons, the cells of the brain, still stands as the foundation for modern neuroscience. He also discovered a new type of brain cell, one that was neither a neuron nor a glia, but something in between. This neuron is now called the interstitial cell of Cajal. He is perhaps best remembered for his skill at drawing. His illustration of brain cells are still used in education today. And he discovered the direction of travel for the brain and spinal cord nerve impulses that won him the Nobel Prize in 1906. Unfortunately for him, time and place conspired to minimize his recognition among other scientists during his lifetime. Although he published in professional journals, his publication in Spanish journals were not widely read in Germany. Another of his books got lost during the Spanish Civil War. Over time, other researchers published findings that had actually been discovered by Cajal years earlier. It would not be until many years after his death that his contribution to neuroscience, Was fully recognized. And so, science was seeing great advances in the study of the physiology of the brain, such as motor and emotional responses. However, the localization debate did not result in the advent of psychology. Psychology would begin at the intersection of perception and human behavior.